Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, so good to be with you. Welcome. It's so good to be with those of you joining us online. Uh, I'm ex- really excited that in a little bit here, we're going to baptize, I think, six individuals at least uh, in this service. I think we have 10 people throughout the whole weekend. It's, my, it's one of my favorite weekends uh, of the entire uh, year. It's just it's so exciting to see these people uh, really making a public decision to follow Jesus uh, and to share uh, in that with them. So we'll do that here in about 25 minutes. But before we do that, we're gonna, I'm going to sh- continue in our series that Michael said, Chasing After the Wind, where we're going through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, pretty much section by section or chapter by chapter. And if, if you haven't been here, because I know we have some guests tonight, just to catch up a little bit, the book of Ecclesiastes is in the genre of wisdom literature. So when you read it or hear it, you should feel wiser and smarter after you've, after you've heard it. And, and we find out pretty much at the beginning that the main person sharing their wisdom is this person known as the teacher. He's identified as the teacher, but church history and tradition has said that it was likely King Solomon of the Old Testament or a Solomon-like person or figure. And so far, he's been sharing wisdom on lots of different topics that are very practical and applicable even today in our day and age. And today's gonna be no different. Today, this teacher is going to talk about the number one stressor in Americans' lives today. What do you think is the number one thing that keeps people up at night? What do you think? Money. Money, money, money. Money, right? It's money, right? Money. You guys nailed it, right? The teacher is going to share his, his thoughts and insights and warnings about chasing after Money And now before you check out and think, oh, here we go again. There's a a pastor up there who just wants my money. That's not what this talk is going to be about. I don't want your money. Solomon didn't want your money. What Solomon's actually going to warn us about is the love of money. He's going to talk about the love of money. The Bible doesn't teach that it's wrong to have money, but it does warn us about the dangers of loving money. You can be very wealthy and not love money. You can be quite poor and be infatuated and consumed by it. And considering Solomon was likely the wealthiest and the the wisest person in the world during his lifetime, living in probably the most prosperous nation uh, in the world at that time, we definitely want to pay attention to what he has to say about money because he is definitely an expert in this area. So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 5. I'm going to start off in verse 10 and kind of go for a few verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about them. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes 5, but we'll also put it up on the screen. So it starts off like this. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether you eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune. 
so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Let's pause here for a bit. There's a lot to unpack in this short little passage. And it seems at first like Solomon is primarily talking to people who have maybe a little bit of an excess of money. And that's true. It is kind of the main thing that he's getting at. But you might be here saying, well, Andrew, but that's not me, right? That's not me. Like right now, right now, like we're, I'm really hurting, right? Financially, we're, I'm really struggling. We're really struggling. My family's like, I don't know how we're going to pay for groceries like this week. And if that's you, like, I'm really sorry that you're going through that. And we would love to help you with that. We, we, we give groceries out regularly through our food pantry on Monday night, every, every other Monday night. And just throughout the week, you can stop by the church and or we can talk. I would love to talk to you afterwards how we could help assist you in that. But whether you have a lot or have a little right now, that's not really the point that Solomon's getting at because he's not wanting to know what's going on in our wallets. He wants to know what's going on in our hearts. He wants to know what's going on in our hearts that he's talking about the love of money, the control that money can have on us Uh, And that can be there whether you're wealthy or poor. You know, my favorite band has been the band Switchfoot for many years. And they have a song a number of years back called The American Dream. And the very first line goes like this. It says, when success is equated with excess, the ambition of excess wrecks us. I want out of this machine. This doesn't feel like freedom this ain't my American dream. I think this song lyric is hard to say five times fast. It's a little repetitive. But, uh, but it's exactly what Solomon, I think, is trying to teach us. It's that the more we, we get in our heads this idea that success is about excess, that the more we get seduced by a love of money, then the more potential it has to wreck us, to rob us of a sense of actual freedom, We think that if we have more, then that would mean I would have more freedom. But is that actually the case? Is that actually the case? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe maybe it's a little bit more like Mo Money, Mo Problems. And that's the title of our talk today, Mo Money, Mo Problems. In fact, I want to talk about good old Solomon, good old Saul's five Mo Money, Mo Problems warnings that we can see in this passage. So number one, number one. The more money you have, the more you want. The more money you have, the more you want. That's what Solomon says in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. For most people, the more you have, the more you tend to want, and the less you find yourself being satisfied. Do any of you know who the world's first billionaire was? Anybody know? He made his money in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. I think I heard somebody say, John D. Rockefeller. Yeah, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, he owned the Standard Oil Company. And when he had reached the height of his wealth, you know, first, world's first billionaire, someone asked him, they said, hey, John, how much do you ha- more do you have to get until you have enough? How much is going to be enough for you? At what point will you feel satisfied and feel like you've got enough? And Rockefeller smiled and famously said, 
just a little bit more. Just a little more. Back in the early 1500s, there was a Renaissance painter by the name of Quentin Massis. He was from Belgium. And at the time, he was watching his city really grow in prosperity. But he was concerned. He was concerned by looking at some of his friends and, and people around that the middle class, the middle class was seemingly becoming consumed by their ambition of becoming wealthy. And so he painted this painting that is famously known as the money lender and his wife. If you want to throw that, that painting up there. So he paints this couple dressed in kind of middle to upper middle class clothing. And the husband, you can see, is staring down at some gold coins. He's got some pearls there, too. And he's got a scale in his hand. And he's, he's, he's very focused on weighing them. And his wife's right beside him. And she's got a book open. And we're not quite sure if it's the Bible or some devotional, but we know it's something Christian and religious because it's hard to tell from the picture. But uh, the, the, the picture in her book is of Mary and little Jesus. But look at her eyes. She's not looking at the book at all. She is looking at all the money her husband is counting and weighing. Uh, they're looking at them. Good old Billy Shakespeare said that the eyes of the window the eyes are the window to our soul. The eyes are the window. And if that's true, that what we look at, uh, that what we focus on, that sheds a light onto where our hearts are at. You know, the, where the status of our souls. This, this husband and wife have shown that their souls are focused on their wealth, they're focused on their money. It's not like that they're concerned about having too little. It's not like they're, they're just holding up one coin, like how are we gonna get groceries with this this week? How are we going to pay the bills? No, they have plenty on the table there, plenty of worth, especially back then. Uh, no, they, what, what the painter, Macis, is trying to make is that even though they have a lot, it's not enough for them. It's not enough for them. The more you have, the more you want, and the less you are satisfied. That's number one. Number two, the more money you have, the more others will want. The more money you have, the more. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? As goods increase, so do those who consume them. You know, uh, as, as you get more, the others around you may want more of it. You know, it's interesting that most lottery winners will admit to actually losing friendships rather than gaining friendships after they win the lottery. That, that whether it's greed or envy or a sense of entitlement or, hey, we're buddies, we're friends, like, you got a little extra, help me out a little bit, right? Like, you know, instead of actually gaining friendships, they actually lose them. I remember hearing a story a number of years ago about two young guys who had this idea. They were going to make this Christian documentary, this film, and, and they, but they needed, some, they needed some investors. They needed some capital. They needed somebody to help kind of pay for it. And so they were talking about it to somebody, and somebody said, hey, you know, in their, this was in their church, and they said, you need to go meet so-and-so in the church because he's a pretty successful businessman, and I hear he likes to really help out with things like that. So they called him up on the phone and kind of sales pitched him their idea, and he listened and his response was, let me, let me pray about that. Let me, let me pray about that. It sounds like a really great idea. And so a day goes by, and they don't hear anything. Three days go by, and they don't hear anything. A week goes by, and they're trying to get antsy, right? So they call him back up again, and he says, why don't you come over to my house? Why don't you come over to my house, 
and we'll talk more about it. And so they get the address, and they've never met this guy before. And so they, they pull up to his house, and they're a little surprised uh, because it seems like a very typical home, American home, average American home in an average neighborhood. Doesn't, doesn't seem to fit the mold of what you would expect from this person that they have heard is so wealthy. Uh, so they knock on the door, and, they, and the guy answers the door, and they're like, hey, is this the right house? And he knows exactly who they are, welcomes them in, and they're a little surprised as they go in the house that it seems very typical. Not ex- there's not a lot there. It's pretty simple life. And the guy welcomes them into his office, and he, they, they kind of share their heart again of what they want to do. And the gentleman sits there, and he listens the whole time, and, he, and they're like, so what do you think? What do you think? He said, well, let me... Let me just tell you a little bit about, you know, me and, and stuff. And he, and he actually says, he says, let me actually tell you about some other friends of mine. And he points across from his desk, there's this wall collage of all these photographs of people. And it's actually, you can't tell it at first, but it's actually covering a world map. There's just so many pictures pinned on it, you can't even hardly tell it's a world map. And he says, that's so-and-so in this country, and they're missionaries, Da, 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 da. Let me tell you their story. And that's, that's so-and-so, and they run a nonprofit in this country, and let me tell you about what they're doing. He, he goes on, he tells them all this stuff about all these people, and he says, so here's my answer, guys. Here's why, you're probably wondering why I haven't given you an answer yet, and why I've been praying about it, because here's what I know. I know that if I give to you, your cause, it probably means I'm gonna have to give a little bit less to those people. And I only want to do that if that's what God wants me to do. If that's what, this man was a multimillionaire, and yet he chose to live and give almost all his fortune away, a very kind of average American life. And it, um, and it gave him great joy to do that, but it also carried a heavy responsibility. It carried a, a, a bit of a burden, knowing lots of people were going to come and want his help. And we see that to be true. We see that often to be true uh, with those who have, God has given a lot. So the more, you ha- more money you have, the more others will want it. Number three, the more money you have, the more you worry about it. The more you worry about it. Verse 12, the sleep of the labor is sweet, whether you eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's ironic because you would think the rich would fall asleep easier, but often that's actually not the case. Here it says the sleep of the labor is sweet. When I was younger, uh, I grew up, my, well, my mom still to this day runs and operates a landscaping business. And so ever since I was, I was a little kid, that was my job. I remember being 13, 14 years old and basically summers working you know, full time. And it was rare, but there were some days where we would pull like an 11 or 12 hour day just to get the job done. And I don't think my mom knew the phrase child labor laws. I don't think she was familiar with that. But uh, I'm just teasing. But, um, but I just remember on some of those days, you know, I'd come home and if you've ever worked a job like that or maybe you work a job like that now, like you don't have trouble sleeping at night, right? Like it's like head hits the pillow and I would be out. And it wasn't just the physical exhaustion of it. It wasn't just that. I mean, that's part of it. But there's also something about Knowing you worked a hard day's worth of work, you gave it everything you had, you, you saw the satisfaction of what you accomplished, you felt good about it, you felt peace about it, and you could go to sleep knowing you, you did everything you could for that day. You know, it's, 
It says here uh, that the rich, Solomon said, are the ones who stay up at night. Not because of their lack, but actually because of their abundance. Worrying about their money, worrying what to do with their money, worrying about decisions about their money. Worrying if, you know, it says one study showed that 85% of affluent Americans actually worry about money and 40% worry about money all the time, day and night. The more you have, the more you actually seem to worry about it. Number four, number four, the more money you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have to lose. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Now, he's not saying that it's a guarantee the more you have, the more you will lose, but rather uh, the more potential there is to lose. You know, if you don't have a lot, then you don't really have the option of losing a lot, right? You probably don't take as high a risks, uh, whether it's investing in new business adventures or being more aggressive in the stock market, right? You hear sometimes in the news, like a celebrity or athlete, they make a ton of mo- money on a movie or a contract or something like that, and a few years later, they're bankrupt, right? They maybe somebody convinced them to invest in this restaurant or this you know, put their name on this business and they know nothing about it, right? That's not their specialty at all. And then it's like, it's, it's a wonder it kind of goes up and, and under because they're not, that's not their field of expertise. But they had so much, it didn't seem like that big of a deal to risk it. And so they have the potential to lose so much. Did you know that almost 80%, 78% of professional NFL athletes are either in serious financial situations or completely bankrupt within two years of being retired. Just two years. Isn't that, I mean, that is so, and yet that's what we encourage our children to grow up to try to be, those kinds of things, right? And it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't set them up for a disaster. Um, But when you have a lot, you are tempted to risk a lot. And so you have the potential to lose a lot. And last one, number five, the more money you have, the more you'll leave behind. The more money you have, the more you'll leave behind. Verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they carry, can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? In the end, Solomon says, it's all just, again, chasing after the wind. It's chasing after the wind. This is the reality, I think, that Solomon uh, probably reflected on late in his life. You know, later in life, uh, as the wealthiest person in the world, he had everything the world could offer financially, uh, that he probably realized, I'm not going to be around for much longer. And what is going to happen to all this wealth I've acquired? I'm not going to take it with me. You know, I can't take it with me. And I think Solomon's point is he's warning us here to not wait until the end, to not wait till our deathbeds to reflect on this truth, to not wait till the end. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, as I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. As I shall forsake them when I die, I'm gonna choose to forsake them now while I'm living. I'm gonna choose to live our lives now not being consumed by something that won't last. 
but rather to choose to be generous and find contentment in this life right now. You know, one of the things I feel like God has showed me over the years personally was that whenever I've recognized that I am a little too consumed by the thought of money, worrying about money, thinking about money, losing sleep at night over money, and this might seem counterintuitive at first, but I, what I, the answer has always been to find a way to be generous, to actually give to somebody or something, whether that's a charity or a family member or a friend in need, to actually get my mind off of my needs and onto the needs of others and to, to give and be generous. Sarah and I have done this over the years a couple different times, and it's been so helpful, so helpful. Proverbs 11.24 says, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another person withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. There's something about the upside-down kingdom of God that when we're generous, God is generous to us. Now, when I say that, listen, and what this verse is saying, what, I'm, what, what this verse isn't saying, and what I'm not saying, is that if you cut God a check, you can go stand by the mailbox and wait for a bigger one from him. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about some false prosperity teaching or gospel that if we just give to God, he will financially give to us back. Because oftentimes, the gaining even more has nothing to do with finances. It's something much deeper than that. It's something more internal in our hearts. Because I think it puts our hearts in the proper place. And what we end up gaining is things like peace and contentment and trusting God with our finances and trusting God with our money. We get outside of ourselves and we give to somebody else. And I think that's what Solomon is saying is the answer. Whether you're rich or poor, the answer is to learn to live a life of contentment. Ecclesiastes verse 18, this is, what, this is Solomon's answer. It says this, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction, or you could say contentment, in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of heart. Who doesn't want that? A gladness of heart. The life of contentment, he says, is the answer. I think the Apostle Paul must have been a fan of Ecclesiastes because he said something very similar. He puts it like this in Philippians 4, 12, and 13. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Solomon and, and Paul, what they're both saying is that life is a gift from God. And in this life, God gives us money as a gift. And it's okay to enjoy it. It's okay to enjoy it. Uh, whether you have plenty or little, the key is to learn to be content. That's what he says. Learn to accept your life and be happy in your labor. Otherwise, you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss the good life, the actual good life. The, the life where you get to the end, you know, it, and you realize, I, I, didn't, I didn't need anymore. I didn't want anymore. I, did, I, didn't, I, there, I never got to the point where there was never enough, I, or I never felt satisfied, or I, I, or I was always worried. 
Or what do I get to the end when I have nothing to show for it? I can't take it with me, right? We tend to be tempted to envy or to look up to the, the Rockefellers of the world when we should look up to the Pauls of the world, those people who have found contentment in life, have found something much richer and grander. But how do we do that? That's easy to say. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, let me, let's throw up that painting again, that painting I showed you earlier, the moneylender and his wife, right? Now, if you can see at the bottom, there's a tiny little mirror. It's a little hard to see at first, so if you want to go to the next slide and zoom in on that mirror. In that mirror, I want to point it here, you can see there's a man. It's a different man. It's not the same man as the husband. It's a different man in the painting. And he's staring out the window, and he's got, actually got his hand on the edge of the window. And look at, look at the window itself between the window panes. It's the shape of a cross. In the background, I don't know if you can tell, but there's a, there's a church steeple. The man is looking at the cross. He's looking out the window. And what's interesting is the man in this painting was the painter himself, Quentin Massey. He chose to paint himself into the painting to make a point. The husband and wife, what are their eyes focused on? Their money. What is, Matt, what is Massey's eyes focused on? The cross. It's focused on Jesus. It's focused on him. You know, if Shakespeare is right, that our eyes truly are the windows to our souls, then we won't find the actual rich life by fixing our eyes on our bank accounts or our 401ks or, you know, or any other of our investments. We'll find it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. So whether you find yourself with a lot right now or a little, doesn't matter. What matters in your life is are you focused on God or not? You wanna be rich? You wanna be rich in a way that actually matters, that actually satisfies, that actually brings peace and contentment? Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's how we stay content. That's how we find the good life. That's something that can't be taken away from you. That's something that you get to take into eternity with you. And we get to to experience the abundance, richness of life in the future and now with Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.